Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Campamentos de verano para niños. No abandones tu inglés. Las plazas vuelan, así que llama ya al is Western Civilization, from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host, my name is Guy Williams, and on this program I'm going to talk about uh, one of the um, worst crises of the middle of the 19th century. On earlier programs I talked about what had happened after the Napoleonic Wars, you know, a certain amount of um, uh, depression, post-war depression in Europe. War has a way of uh, d- making the economy more dynamic. Certainly, it increases demand for food and transportation and, well, many other things. But if, uh, often you're living on debt and those debts have to be repaid after the war. An economic crisis is almost inevitable. And this involves social unrest and all sorts of problems. I talked about how in England uh, those problems were handled with a series of reforms, uh, changing the nature of parliament, uh, increasing the number of people with the franchise, with the right to vote, uh, abolishing slavery, and making sure that, for example, uh, women and children did not work in mines and that children under nine years of age could no longer work in factories. And how all of these reforms uh, were absolutely crucial in avoiding social revolution, the, the kinds of spasms that were going to rock Europe, especially in the revolutions of 1848 um, really didn't have an you know it didn't have much of an echo in Britain. However, what what did happen in 1848? Well, in Ireland, um, you know, these Ireland at this time sort of in a bubble, 
virtually all the land in Ireland owned by about 700 families. Most of the families there living in England, most of them deriving rent from their lands in Ireland, where the work was done by families renting the land that they worked. Um, the, um, an inquilino is called a tenant in English. And this sort where the, uh, the farmer has to rent the land, this is called tenant farming. This is not exactly the same as, um, what is it? Aparathea. Um, what in English we would call sharecropping, crop being el cultivo, share compartir, where the crop is shared between the tenant and the landlord. And yes, uh, sharecropping, um, well, for example, in the south of the United States, a very, very typical way of agricultural production um, post-slavery. Well, um, and, and then sharecropping in, um, in many places in Spain as well. But in Ireland, it was tenant farming. And, uh, this idea of tenant farming, um, you would have subsistence crops, crops that you would, uh, use to, to feed your family. And then, in addition to which, a cash crop. The cash crop, turned over to the landlord and the landlord would sell that uh, on his own but the cash crop was the the only reason these people would have land in the first place right subsistence and cash crops now on an earlier program i was talking about how, what happens if you um what happens if the landlords uh, force these people uh, to produce cash crops instead of subsistence farming. In the uh, British Empire in India, for example, in Bengal, when um, producing opium on plantations became so lucrative, the British were forcing farmers to, uh, to grow opium practically exclusively and then when there was um, a shortage, Esgath Seth, of a shortage of food, all of a sudden, um, because there was no, these, these farmers were not growing their own crops. They were not growing things for themselves. Uh, all of their land had been turned over to the cash crop, to opium. Well, they, they died. And so, yes, in the um, Bengal famine of the 1770s, the we really don't know how many people died or how many people were forced to leave Bengal. Um, the statistics were not kept, and the numbers we have uh, cannot be guaranteed. But yes, some people talk about five million people dying simply because <laughs> there isn't um, subsistence crop. And if you think, well. People have not learned their lesson. I mean, um, as recently as the year 2007, right, 2007, people died of hunger because of the commitment to uh, growing biofuel, right? The, the grains produced in, uh, say, Swaziland in southern Africa 
uh, all of those were going to biofuel. And so there wasn't enough left over for the population. And, and uh, yes, people began to die. The biofuel uh, being very controversial. Um, the, the creation of biofuel, which is, well, very important in Europe or in the United States, in the United States with maize, with corn, uh, corn ethanol maintains quite a number of farms, although in the United States, uh, it's generally agribusiness, not, right? Not, um, not family farms, but rather industrial farming. And, um, well, they say that, um, this biofuel, it, it emits more greenhouse gases than, uh, Petroleum or mineral-based fuels, but yes, uh, more than two hundred years after the uh, uh, the famine, uh, Ambruna famine, after the famine in Bengal, you have yeah famine for, for the same reason that uh, cash crops become more important than subsistence crops, right? The the, the crop to to feed the individual farmer. Now, back in Ireland in the 19th century, what they used as subsistence crops, what fed the farmer and his family, consisted of potatoes. And uh, potatoes, although they had been um, explored and understood uh, for centuries, I mean, uh, as soon as Pizarro got to Peru, uh, people understood that you could eat potatoes, that potatoes were good, but um, but it took a long time for Europe to become accustomed to the potato. And people just did not want uh, to eat potatoes. Uh, there, there was a rejection because it was so new. Um, so that, for example, first in Europe, um, Prussia... Uh, Dictatorship, sort of, with, you know, uh, everybody obedient. I command and you obey. When they were convinced of the benefit of potatoes, it was simply ordered by decree that farmers had to grow them and the population had to eat them. Then a man, uh, a Frenchman, uh, a prisoner of war in Prussia called Parmentier, saw the benefit of potatoes and brought them to France. And uh, curiously, the French understood that they could not command people to eat potatoes. So they did it in a very, uh, una manera muy taimada, right? A very sly way. They started growing potatoes in the royal gardens and uh, telling people that potatoes were exclusively for the nobility and that common people, the, you know, the, the vulgar class, uh, that um, they were not good enough to eat potatoes. And then the uh, soldiers around the royal gardens were instructed to look the other way if people tried to steal these potatoes. And in a relatively short time, um, potatoes were growing all over France. Now, in Ireland, potatoes were adopted initially out of necessity. 
Because if all the time and energy is going into uh, producing a cash crop for the landlord, well, the subsistence crop, what you're going to eat, what you and your family are going to eat, uh, that has to be kind of um, low maintenance. That has to be something that looks after itself. And so Ireland became utterly, completely, totally dependent on potatoes. And it was an Irishman, a man named... Um, Enrique Doyle, who came to Spain and was able to convince Florida Blanca and Carlos III himself the, of the benefit of the potato, so that uh, little by little it began to be planted around Spain, but it began to be eaten. <laughs> it began to be a fundamental part of the Spanish diet during the Guerra de Independencia, right, as as a result of the Napoleonic Wars and the devastation of the Napoleonic Wars in the Iberian Peninsula. These were um, años de hambre, right? Um, and there was a certain stigma so that later on, for example, the Carlistas, uh, one of the slogans of the Carlistas was Abajo la patata, down with potatoes, which, well, it makes it kind of ironic that, um, you know, this anecdote, which has no basis in fact, but which everyone repeats, that it was the great Carlist leader, Tomás de Zamalacárregui, during the siege of Bilbao, who discovered the Tortilla de patata. And people give the date as 1834, 1835. In some cases, um, Thamalacarregui invented it himself. In other cases, it was his cook uh, because there was nothing to eat. And um, in some stories, uh, Thamalacarregui was in the house of a humble farmer, in some versions, this is um, in Bizcaya, which would make sense. In other versions, it is in Navarra. And he, um, he, he finds the tortilla de patata and he um, then popularizes it. But culinary historians tell us that that never happened. By the way, with the Carlist Wars... Um, on a later program, I'm going to talk about the um, the Crimean War and how many things began to change with the Crimean War. Uh, with the Crimean War, you had access to uh, telegraphs, and so all of a sudden, foreign correspondents, newspaper correspondents, were able to give people kind of a day-to-day -day vision of the war and that these foreign correspondents became celebrities and uh, were responsible for um, uh, increased newspaper circulation and uh, all of that attributed to the Crimean War. However, if you think about <coughs> the benefits of um, good publicity and public relations and how to keep um, how to keep public opinion on your side and how to treat foreign correspondence, then, then you have to go back to the Carlist Wars because the coverage from the Carlist Wars 
very ample. And the foreign correspondence there with the Carlists made sure that uh, Thamalakarri was uh, one of the um, one of the most widely admired, uh, one of the best known celebrities of his time. Thamalakarri always um, looked after his public image. And as I say, one of the first people to do so in the in the post-Napoleonic world. But evidently, that that is not where the tortilla de patata comes from. Uh, they have attributed this, the very first instance, to Estremadura in 1798 in uh, Villanueva de la Serena. Now, if you've never been to La Serena, it's a comarca. It's in the province of Badajoz. It is very sparsely populated. It uh, contains, not not very far from Villanueva, um, it contains um, one of the strangest of ancient ruins in Spain, uh, Cancho Ruano, which was a sort of a Phoenician or Phoenician-influenced um Palace, maybe, or a commercial center, or in any case, uh, yes, in the middle of nowhere, and and very, very far from the coast. In any case, um, Estremadura is probably the the best place in Spain to visit in springtime. Spring there is uh, it's amazing, it's exuberant. And uh, as I say, La Serena is relatively remote. Um, if you go there, you are guaranteed, absolutely guaranteed, uh, to avoid uh, la, la masificación, right? The, the immense crowds of people that can um, otherwise ruin a holiday. But yes, um, let's go back. Let's go back to the potato. Uh, let's go back to the potato internationally. Um, now in, in Galicia, uh, just like in Ireland, uh, Galicia suffered when the potatoes stopped growing. Um, evidently the potato was only becoming common in the middle of the 19th century there. Um, the Indianos, right, or people returning from the Americas brought potatoes with them and established the potato there, more than a hundred varieties in Galicia in the 19th century. But when the potatoes began to die and people began, became hungry, there was a great deal of unrest that uh, caused problems for the government in the, uh, well, the late, um, 1840s, early 1850s, leading to the Bicalbarada. But, uh, clearly nothing, nothing as bad as what was going on in Ireland at the time. Now, on an earlier program, I, oh no, on my last program, on my last program I was talking about the, uh, the corn laws in Britain that kept the price of grain artificially high, which was, uh, beneficial to members of the House of Lords who practically uh, all of them were, um, you know, they had large country estates. They had, um, they, they were the landed class. Uh, 
and a lot of their income derived from uh, the price of grain. So there were heavy duties, heavy tariffs on imports from grain from anywhere else. Now, uh, Robert Peel, the head of the Tory party, uh, betrayed his own party, uh, betrayed his own class interests by promoting the abolition of those tariffs, the repeal of the Corn Law. And uh, the result was uh, the rise of, uh, up until then, um, somebody was completely anonymous, uh, Benjamin Disraeli, only 33 years old at this time, is going to be the great defender of the ultra-conservative interests of the uh, the landed estates and accusing Robert Peel of of ruining his party. And this is going to cause the Tory party to to break into two two different factions and um, ultimately it, it will make them unelectable for a very very long time. Uh, Peel convinced that this is the right thing to do because it will lower the price of bread. And he believes that revolution is a very real possibility. There will be um, civil disorder and riots because um, because bread is too expensive, because people are not eating. And um, Peel really doesn't care what's going on in Ireland. Although um, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert did uh, very much, and they were very much in favor of the repeal of the Corn Law. The Queen, by that time, had already donated 2,000 pounds of her own money to a famine relief fund. And um, Albert did something he had never done before and uh, subsequently never did again. He went to the House of Commons and listened to the debate from the gallery. And this shocked people. Um, you know, intromission, a kind of meddling in politics that was uh, very, very unwelcome. Uh, the idea that uh, this was, you know, that he had been sent by Victoria and that this is um this is ruination for the landed aristocracy of England and Scotland that uh, this is overstepping the boundary right oh, that this is uh, far from constitutional that yes uh, both the queen and the consort are allowed to have opinions and uh political tendencies but not to demonstrate them in such a public way. And yes, Albert uh, never made that mistake again. But the Corn Law was deeply important to him. And although the Corn Law passed, I mean, the radicals, the Whigs, uh, the small number of Irish representatives in Parliament, and, well, they all combined to make sure it passed uh, the, the third time it was presented but the Tories had their revenge by uh, sabotaging, uh, simply destroying a 
government initiative to establish law and order in Ireland. Now, naturally, Peel was forced to resign and the, well, the mantle of protectionism taken up by Disraeli. They began to call themselves um, conservatives instead of Tories. And because of this stand they were taking against free trade, they were not going to have a majority government until until 1874. But that didn't help the Irish. Um, There were no potatoes to eat. Uh, They were all black and uh, liquefied. But the new government, the Whig government, refuses to prohibit the export of food from Ireland and the grain which which could feed the Irish is all going to England by, by contract. You know, if you have to choose between um, the factory workers in the north of England uh, who go hungry because they cannot afford bread or the Irish, uh, I mean, politically, uh, the factory workers in the north of England can cause a great deal of trouble, whereas... The Irish simply starve, right? Mori de hambre, to starve. The Irish simply starve or emigrate. So that there is a saying in Ireland today that God made the blight. The blight is uh, la, la plaga. God made the blight, but the government made the famine. And uh, the famine, the great famine, because there were earlier famines and subsequently yes there was there was hunger but this was the great famine the great famine did irremediable damage and as i say the scotland lived from potatoes uh, galicia had problems because the potatoes were dying but the uh, the level of mortality in ireland was exceptional and the government completely failed to to deal with it in any way. The result, um, unforgivable. The result, uh, a major tragedy. And, uh, all right, I have to take a break. I'll be back right afterwards. Programa completo de inmersión en inglés con alojamiento incluido. Tus hijos hablarán inglés durante todo el día mientras participan en talleres, juegos y actividades deportivas y multiaventura. Y todo eso sin clases. Todas las modalidades de campamentos Baugan están diseñados para niños y niñas entre 6 y 15 años, independientemente de la programación o la instalación. En nuestros campamentos de inglés se acostumbran a utilizar el inglés sin miedo y con total confianza, en un entorno rural, acogedor y seguro. La coordinación 
Fundación Pedagógica de Baugan asegura un ambiente de inversión, cuidado y de calidad. Tráelos a nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés. 911-335-832. 911-335-832. Ahora con nuevas facilidades de pago. Agua, plazos sin intereses. Llámanos al 911-335-832. Campamentos de verano Baugan. El líder del sector. 911-335-832. No lo dejes para el último momento. Aprenderán inglés mientras viven mil aventuras. No olvides preguntar por el resto de campamentos e inversiones de la línea Junior de Vaughan. Sí, dígame. Ahora tu profesor Vaughan, desde tu casa, la oficina, tu profesor Vaughan en clases telefónicas. Ahora más fácil y cómodo, consigue uno de los tres planes de formación en grupovaughan.com barra clases telefónicas. Summer camps, campamentos de Vaughan. Your kids will love them and their English will grow. Our summer camps, campamentos de Vaughan. Just bring us your children for English and much more. Si te acabas de licenciar, no entres en el mercado laboral ni te plantees un máster hasta no resolver del todo la cuestión del inglés. Resuelve el tema ahora, mientras eres joven y tienes tiempo. Después, es casi imposible. Y recuerda, para los reclutadores vale más un probado dominio del inglés que una docena de másters. Resuélvelo ya. Llámanos. 911335833. 911335833. Recuerda hacer tu prueba de nivel sin compromiso. Llámanos. 911335833. Y ahora financiate el 100% del máster. Consulta condiciones en grupobaugan.com. Aquí llega Lorena Martínez con la última pregunta del examen. Vaya, parece que le ha caído el pass perfect. Lorena lleva toda la temporada entrenando el pass perfect, pero nunca ha sido su punto fuerte. ¡Wow! Eso es Lorena. Vamos, vamos. Fin de gas, Lorena. ¡Wow! Increíble. Ya se ha acercado todas, todas. ¡Qué barbaridad! Lorena Martínez, señoras y señores, qué crack el examen es de 10. Consigue que tus hijos sean unos auténticos cracks del inglés. Con los cursos del Club Junior no solo mejorarán sus notas, sino que hablarán inglés de verdad y serán capaces de comunicarse. Y por si eso fuera poco, lo pasan genial en clase. Club Junior son las clases para niños de 4 a 17 años en grupos muy reducidos y 100% método Baugan. Infórmate ya en el 911335832, 911335832 o en grupobaugan.com. ¿Tienes niños? Pues, ¿qué mejor forma que aprendan inglés que haciendo lo que más les gusta? En nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés se divertirán participando en un sinfín de variadísimas actividades en un entorno seguro y 100% angloparlante. Acompañados en todo momento de Monitores Vaughan. Campamentos de verano para niños. No abandones tu inglés. Las plazas vuelan, así que llama ya al 91 133 5832 91 133 5832 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Western Civilization from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams. And on the first part of the program, I was talking about the famine, Ambruna, the famine in Ireland in the 1840s. How the great majority of the population was working on farms, on land that they did not own, a land that was owned by people mostly living in England, and that, well, in order to to be able to work on this land, uh, they had to make a commitment uh, to produce certain crops, right, cultivos, crops that could be sold by the owner for money. These are called cash crops, then other things left over that, uh, that could be consumed by the farmer and the farmer's family. And these are called subsistence crops. Well, uh, the subsistence crop of choice, the thing that most people ate and how they derived most of their calories, right? Uh, the thing that they, they lived on um, was the potato. And when the potatoes began to die, there was nothing that these people could eat. Now, the government in London could have done many things to stop this from happening, to prevent this, to prevent people from dying. But most people just seemed to look the other way. Um, there was a lot of active anti Irish hostility as well. Um, one of the people responsible for establishing order, a man named um, Charles Trevelyan, he said that the judgment of God sent the calamity to teach the Irish a lesson, and that calamity must not be too much mitigated. In other words, uh, God uh, causing <laughs> millions of people to die is a part of some kind of um, manifest providence and that uh, the politicians that are allowing this to happen should should not interfere with what God is trying to do. Now, of course, the, you know, very bad publicity. Um, the Ottoman Empire, right? The, the Sultan in Constantinople or rather, as as it was now called, Istanbul, from the uh, from the sublime port, right, Topkapi Palace, offering to send food. Uh, this is a public relations triumph for the Ottoman Empire, right? Embarrassing Britain like this. Uh, this is a public relations disaster for Britain, and puts Britain um, in the position of having to prohibit this aid from being established there was a um, there was a tribe an indian tribe in the united states uh, if i remember correctly it was the choctaw that uh, sent food they were not in a position to send much it was more symbolic but it was well appreciated and well remembered today because yes for for many of the irish you you talk to them about what happened then, and it is as if time had never passed, and uh, as if 
we were still in the in the 1840s. Now, the year before the famine began, uh, the population of Ireland was well, eight million or nine million people, and a generation later, it was at three million. So you can um, you can imagine the the size of the devastation. The fact is that um, the, the population has not recovered. Uh, the population of Ireland today is significantly lower than it was before the famine at uh, something like, well, less than seven million, uh, six and a half, let's say six and a half million people living in Ireland today, making it far fewer than there were in Ireland in 1840. Then um, later on, after the devastation, after uh, after Ireland had been permanently broken, weakened, uh, you had the abolition of the Irish Parliament and direct control over Ireland from Westminster. That meant that the Irish were no longer able to uh, to plan their own um, development. Right. Uh, there was a deindustrialization and a ruralization of Ireland. Uh, Ireland as the bread basket. Ireland existing to feed an industrial Britain and the Irish convinced that um, the, the misfortune that had happened to them, the, the tragedy that would never have been tolerated in Britain. And of course, these are uh, <laughs> the the human skeletons. That, uh, that, that were left, um, trying to get on ships. The ships to the United States, many of them. Massive waves of Irish coming to the United States at this time. To America, to Canada. Um, 1848, uh, you have a war between the United States and Mexico. The idea to, um, to gain territory in Mexico and uh, convert that territory uh, to um, slave plantations, you know, the way that um, uh, Texas had been opened up to to slavery earlier. It was a um, deeply unpopular war in the United States, but um, Mexico, um, because of the political situation there, uh, kind of political paralysis, uh, unable to resist... And so uh, Mexico loses um, more than 50% of its total land, total surface area. Uh, that becomes little by little incorporated into the United States. And that same year, gold is discovered in California. And the following year, you have people from everywhere uh, and and especially Ireland. But then... Um, even afterwards, the diaspora, right, the, the um, immigration of the Irish continues for generations because there are so few opportunities left at home. Many, many of the Irish uh, emigrating to Britain so that you have places, uh, for example, in um, northern England with a significant percentage of the population who are descendants of the Irish. But... Again, historians uh, asking what could have been done. Uh, you know, how do you feed 8 million people when the potatoes disappear? Before cans were common and other 
methods of preservation of food uh, before trains. But again, um, trains were never even established in Ireland ever uh, to the extent that they were in England. And, well, some of the measures there, um, they... It's not like they did nothing. They hired poor people to to do public works, um, roads that were unnecessary and that uh, really went nowhere, uh, roads that, of course, were unfinished. They paid the United States £100,000 for American corn, right, what the British call maize. And when it arrived... Absolutely nobody knew what to do with it, right? How to, how to eat it. And, well, as I said, the, uh, again, putting somebody like Trevelyan, Charles Trevelyan in charge, saying that, um, this is the judgment of God. And, uh, another quote, he said, the real evil with which we have to contend is not the physical evil of the famine, but the moral evil of the selfish, perverse, and turbulent character of the people. In other words, uh, first you say that uh, God is doing this, and uh, we uh, we should not do anything to intervene in God's judgment. And then secondly, that the real problem is the victim, that uh, the people dying in their millions are too selfish, too perverse, and too turbulent. And all of this implies that um, the world is better off without them. Meanwhile, uh, back in the uh, parliamentary system in England, you have uh, the rise of William Gladstone. And uh, Gladstone and Disraeli are going to be, well, uh, Gladstone, um, four times prime minister. He was born in Liverpool in 1809, which would make him, what, uh, six years younger than Disraeli. He was born uh, the same year as Abraham Lincoln. His uh, parents were both successful, well, no, his parents, uh, sorry, his father, his father was a merchant. His parents were both of Scottish ancestry, and they were able to afford the best uh, in public schools. Remember, the public school system in England is um, what everyone else would call private schools. They are called public school, I believe, because um, they're not restricted to nobility, right? Anyone who can afford those prices and is academically qualified can attend. And the, uh, the the greatest of those public schools at the time, Eton. Now, the uh, life at the public school at the time, um, <laughs> discipline, uh, boys were often whipped. There was a great deal of corporal punishment. And so literally you would have, you would have a, um, child under any pretext uh, azotado, <laughs> whipped um, in front of his schoolmates uh, as a form of entertainment. And uh, this generally meant public approval. It would uh, 
strengthen one's character. Uh, Eaton uh, giving a lot of emphasis to uh, sports and team sports and going out in all weather and playing on on the fields and how this was uh, ideal practice for, for example, a, a future in the military or um, perhaps in the imperial civil service you learn how to give orders, you learn how to take orders and and carry them out. In any case, um, this elite education at that time still very much involved in Greek and Latin so that everyone was expected to know the classics and to be able to apply the lessons learned from the classics. He was also good at maths and very much interested in religion. Uh, at least initially he thought he had a vocation and that he was going to become a member of the clergy, a vicar in the Church of England. However, Gladstone's father wanted him to become a politician. And so he uh, he followed the wishes of his father and um, and entered into political life, becoming a member of parliament the year after the reform bill was passed, right? The reform bill uh, radically increasing the the franchise, the right to vote, so that uh, middle-class members at this time able to vote. However, uh, the system of rotten boroughs, which I, I mentioned on an earlier program, these are uh, el caciquismo, basically. Uh, borough being a district, a voting district, and a rotten borough, uh, being a district that doesn't really exist, right? That is underpopulated or unpopulated, uh, towns that have been deserted, uh, towns that have been <laughs> covered up by the sea, uh, things like that, uh, but, but, uh, that still exist on paper and, uh, can be manipulated by the landed aristocracy, by members of the House of Lords. So that a, <laughs> You know, the powerful member of the House of Lords uh, could be responsible for sending as many as 11 members of Parliament to the House of Commons. So he was a direct beneficiary of this system, but little by little he changed. Okay, so for many years uh, he was an aristocrat and aligned himself with the most, let's say, retrograde of Tory values. He was a member of Robert Peel's cabinet during the Corn Laws, and that broke the Tory party in two. All of a sudden you had uh, Peel uh, with with a fragmented party, and then, and then the ultras under Benjamin Disraeli, who up until that time was unknown, completely anonymous, uh, a novelist, but now a famous because of his defense of the, let's call it the ultras, who now call themselves the conservative party. Now, in this, he followed Peel. He believed that the end of the Corn Laws was going to be good for the country. Anything which would, would make the price of bread go down is good for the country. But, uh, Thirteen years later, that fragmentation was still in place. He simply 
joined the Whig Party, which at that time was beginning to call itself the Liberal Party and became its leader and started to become more radical in his views until there there were Whigs that just (laughs) abandoned the party that went over to the conservatives because Gladstone was too liberal for them. Gladstone himself said, I was brought up, I was raised, right, I was brought up to distrust and dislike liberty. I learned to believe in it. That is the key to all my changes. Now, on on my last program, I talked about the Civil War in the United States and what that meant. The conservatives, including Queen Victoria and... Prince Albert, sympathized with the South. The um, industrialists with the textile factories in northern England, they completely depended on southern cotton. But it was more than that. I mean, uh, the United States uh, had been created by succession, right, from England. And uh, you had these southern states that wanted to succeed from the Union, and constitutionally they had a very strong argument to do so, to to force them, uh, to force them back into the Union was considered um, hypocritical. Now, it would have been another thing if Abraham Lincoln, right, the president of the Union, of the North, had been in favor of abolition, which was becoming increasingly popular in England at this time, but he really couldn't do this because there were states that had opted to remain with the Union. We're talking about Missouri, Kentucky, and Maryland that were very much pro-slavery, but had decided to fight with the Union so that um, uh, proclaiming abolition was was absolutely out of the question. Now... uh, at this time, you know, with the um, corn laws and so forth, um, Britain had begun to uh, see the benefits of free trade and how free trade, in the end, will benefit everyone. In- initially, it benefits the consumer, but in the long run, the producer will also benefit from the increased competition that free trade represents. Now, free trade is obviously in the benefit of exporting countries, which means developing countries who are largely agricultural economies, so that, uh, yeah, the the poor people and the people who produce um, materia prima, raw material, the the, the colonies, um, all of them are going to be very much in favor of free trade. However, the economies that want to industrialize, uh, many of them believe in protectionism so that they, they give a certain uh, subsidized, right, a subvencionado, a subsidized boost, para uh, potenciar, to boost the uh, industrial development. And this is what the North was all about. This is what the United States was doing. I mean, there were significant duties, tariffs. America was able, or rather the United States, able to industrialize 
because of this protectionism. And this is also the way that uh, Germany began to industrialize, especially Prussia. They were heavily protectionist. And of course, in Spain, as Catalonia began to create industry, it began to pressure Madrid for protective tariffs. And Madrid did not listen, which the Catalans interpreted as being, well, first bad for Catalonia, but uh, bad for Spain as well. It meant that Spain would never be able to follow the uh, path of the United States or, or Germany to industrialization. And, of course, these people would look on what, what Britain was doing as a kind of hypocrisy because Britain had already successfully industrialized. They they had no more necessity uh, for protectionism. It was now in their interest to promote free trade and insist on free trade with their partners. The fact that Britain had gotten there first uh, meant that industrialization in the rest of the world was now going to be much, much more difficult. In any place, um, Gladstone himself, uh, very sympathetic to the South, he said, we may have our opinions about slavery. We may be for or against the South, but there is no doubt that Jefferson Davis, right, the president of the Confederacy, there's no doubt that Jefferson Davis and other leaders of the South have made an army. They are making, it appears, a navy. And yes, this becomes very important because um, it means that Britain can recognize the South as being belligerent. Uh, this, this is not an internal affair anymore. If you recognize the South as belligerent, then it is no longer una intermission, right? It, it isn't any meddling if you deal with the South, right? If this is simply uh, amotinados, if this is simply a small-scale rebellion within the country, then a foreign power should not intervene. But if you recognize <laughs> that this um, these people have an army and a navy, then they, they should be recognized as, as um, important. But it was a question of whether they had made a nation and... Um, Gladstone was determined to say this. He says, um, Davis, Jefferson Davis and other leaders of the South have made an army. They are making, it appears, a navy. And they have made what is more than either. They have made a nation. In other words, uh, Britain should give full recognition to the South. Britain should um, accept representatives from the Confederacy and... Um, and begin to deal with the Confederacy as a country. Well, um, Queen Victoria and uh, Prince Albert were, were horrified by this. Uh, sentimentally, yes, they believed in the Southern cause, but um, they were convinced that if Britain recognized the South, the North would immediately invade Canada and simply swallow Canada. The uh, government was was forced to uh, uh, reinforce the military defense of Canada. It was uh, forced to take Canada seriously, perhaps for the first time. 
I mean, you had uh, Northern Canada, Southern Canada, Southern Canada, uh, mostly French, Northern Canada, mostly English, and a certain animosity between them. Yeah, I mean, uh, you you could call you could call the Confederacy a nation, but at this time, Canada could not really be called a nation. But um, all that was about to change. Okay, I, I have run out of time. Thank you for listening, and please, listen to my next program. Vete a Bauentown y date cuenta, nada más llegar, de que tu dominio es más cercano al cero absoluto. En inglés decimos humble pie, o sea, comer tarta de humildad. Bauentown te dará primero un rudo despertar y conforme pasan los días, un nuevo despertar. Un despertar lleno de seguridad, confianza y convicción. Si existen los milagros, Bauentown se cuenta entre ellos. Ay, ¿qué es eso? Una amapola. ¿Y eso? Otra amapola. Este verano, apúntelos a un campamento en el que se divierten de verdad. Apúntelos a un campamento de inglés Baugan. Tenemos un montón de opciones. 